Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. Now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, we're back here again in the studio. We're going to start this week with a rant and a rave. And you asked me the difference between a rant and a rave. You looked it up. I did look it up. You know, and this is episode 17. And my rave. I think we're getting incrementally better. The, just a little bit incrementally. every time. Incrementally. <laughs> if, you, if you're just tuning in for the first time to one of our podcasts, start like start at, at about end. episode right. 10. Uh, this is episode 17. Don't go back to episode they're, one. They're all good. They're all good because well, it's because of content. Frank, all, is he paying it's, you? It's, it's all relative, it's all relative, Frank. No. Okay. But my rave this week is about you because you're oh. an excellent co-host. Show seventeen. I got you a little gift for your office. Whoa. You have to open it right here live on the air, and it's it's for your wall. You're a mensch. Yes, I am a mensch, <laughs> and I, I think you really love it. Oh. Tell, so tell our nice. listeners what it is. Yes, it's our logo for the show. Is it? It's a oh, it's a metal sign with a logo for the show. We love our logo. We this do love great. our logo. This is so great. Thank well, I'm you. I'm glad you like it. This okay. is it's your birthday yesterday. I should be the one giving you a gift. <laughs> it was okay. So that's the rave, and my co-host, Dr. Leanne Talton, is a phenomenal co-host, and. I want to rave about that. But my rant this week has to do with the overuse of antibiotics. And this really has always bothered me because one of the issues that has really been bothering me for a long time and it creates a healthcare crisis is the overuse of antibiotics. And patients will call up, they'll come in, and they'll almost always expect an antibiotic for a runny nose, sore throat, just a general feeling of malaise. My doctor up north always gives me antibiotic. You know, my real doctor. Right. <laughs> uh, penicillin doesn't work for me. Why did I bother to come to you if you're not going to treat me with an antibiotic? Or I'll just go to walk-in clinic and they'll give me what I want. These are common mantras echoed across the United States by patients who expect antibiotics when, in fact, antibiotics are not indicated. And because of doctor fatigue, physician burnout, if you work for a large hospital system, fear of a bad patient evaluation or a negative online review prompts the doctor to inappropriately pacify the patient with what the patient wants. But is this disservice helping anyone or is it hurting everyone? And this is why, Leanne, antibiotics are not indicated for your illness. Let me briefly talk about antibiotic usage 101. Antibiotics treat bacterial infections, not viruses. Infections like colds, the flu, most sore throats, bronchitis, sinus and ear infections are usually viral. And an antibiotic does not work for viruses. Sinus infections and bronchitis should not be treated with antibiotics for at least 10 days. And then if the infection doesn't go away on its own and remains, then an antibiotic 
might be used, but a culture should really be obtained first. And the reason we treat strep throat with an antibiotic is not to reduce the sore throat, it just reduces the chance of developing bacterial heart infections. Strep throat has characteristic criteria, but it rarely occurs after age 42, and it should be treated if your culture or strep screen positive. So why not use antibiotics in kids? But a lot, because they increase diarrhea and fatal diarrhea with Clostridium difficile bacteria, which is an overgrowth bacteria, because it reduces the normal flora in the gut. Think this is a slight problem? It's a major problem because the overuse of antibiotics kills 14,000 adults a year in the United States. Patients tell me that a certain antibiotic never works for them, that they're immune to it. People don't become immune to antibiotics, folks. Bacteria are smart and they develop antibiotic resistance, ways to avoid the antibiotic. They create resistant strains. So the more a person is exposed to antibiotics, the more likely they are to develop those resistant strains of bacteria, rendering the antibiotic, when needed, virtually worthless. Antibiotics are not a magical cure for all disease. So in summary, we need to use antibiotics less often, not more often, and appropriately, and educate our patients regarding their proper use. End of rant. I love that rant. Yeah, I really I, love that rant. I yeah. also say that, you know, it, it is so much easier to have a six minute visit when you just give people what they want, which is about the length of time for uh, these days, a standard primary care visit, but for sure an urgent care visit. So the fact that you've always been given an antibiotic in the past, I think makes people think that that's just the way that we treat it. And, and the fact is, is that if you have a doctor that knows you and cares about you, you're less likely to get an antibiotic because we're treating the illness, not your desires. Absolutely. And with what we do in direct primary care medicine, DPC medicine, we get to spend a lot of time with patients. So we try to educate. And I always challenge patients because I think it's very interesting that a lot of times when we meet patients, they'll tell us right off the bat, well, you know, I'm not a doctor person. I'm not a medicine person. And it does seem like they forget that when they're asking for antibiotics, that this goes against their core beliefs to eradicate their gut bacteria. But they put in that conjunction. There's always that, but I'm right. not a but, medicine person, but. But I really want right. what I want. And I'm going to discount your expertise in evaluating me to get what I want. Absolutely. What's well, our show about this week? Oh my gosh. I am so excited to introduce our guest for this show. Um, Dr. Jim Vopel, I would say, is as close to local doctor celebrity as you can get. I mean, patients get diagnosed with these diseases that he treats, such as breast cancer, and he is a knight in shining armor. I can say that because he has helped me in the past. Welcome, Dr. Jim Vopel, to our show. Thank you very much. First of all, I'd like to say I love the rave, and I <laughs> really agree with the rant, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you. That, that's very, very kind of you. So Dr. Vopel, Jim, uh, accomplished physician, a brilliant surgeon, a dentist, oral surgeon, trauma surgeon, general surgeon, thyroid surgeon, breast surgeon. In the last 35 years, you've done it all. Tell us how you ended up becoming a premier breast specialist. Well, as everything else in life, it's an evolution. You find what you like, and if you're smart, 
as you mature, you find something that you have a passion for and what you feel best suited for. And in the 1990s, I was one of the founding members of the American Society of Breast Surgeons. There were a hundred of us that met at a stereotactic biopsy meeting, which is a breast biopsy. And we decided we needed to have a society that was directly involved with and directed the course of the treatment of breast cancer. So I was one of the founding members. I was number 81 because my name began with V. Uh, it was at that time that I decided I wanted to narrow down what I was doing and breast became my focus. I went to all the breast meetings. I put myself forward as a breast surgeon. Some of my colleagues said, you'll starve to death. You can't make up any money doing that. Well, I really didn't care because it's what I had a passion for. So that's what I did. And uh, that's where my practice has evolved. So how do you, as a breast surgeon, differ from a general surgeon who does breast surgery, let's say, on occasion? Well, patients are sent to me with an abnormal mammogram or a breast lump, and I take it from there. If they need a biopsy, I do the biopsy. If the biopsy is benign, I tell them what they need to do with that benign diagnosis. If it is a malignancy, I will take it forward, do their workup, direct them to where they need to be. Uh, since I'm semi-retired now, I don't do surgery like I did before, but I will get them to who I feel is a competent surgeon for what they need done. So let me back up a little bit because we just mentioned that you have you have a lot of initials behind your name. If we if we'll if we'll say it like that, but so you evolved into a breast surgeon. But before you were doing breast surgery, and even afterwards, you still do a lot of neck surgery. Can you tell us about your training and how you got started? Well, I trained as a general surgeon, but I also trained with one of the preeminent breast and thyroid surgeons at the University of Miami, who was a mentor. So although I didn't do any specialty training like an otolaryngologist as head and neck surgeon, I was also an oral surgeon and I did a lot of head and neck surgery, a lot of cancer surgery. I was on a faculty for two years at the University of Miami. So I did a lot of head and neck surgery. I did trauma surgery. I did general surgery. When I came to Stewart, you kind of can't do everything because Stewart in 1986 was a small town. Um, then I became a general surgeon and what came my way is what I did. And as my career progressed, I narrowed it down. I no longer did vascular surgery. I didn't do abdominal surgery. And general surgeons do everything. They may do five breast cancers a year when I do 300 breast cancers. And who do you want doing your breast cancer? Somebody who does five or somebody who does 300? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you're slowing down, that you're entering a stage of semi-retirement. It seems like you, you might not know how to retire. <laughs> well, when you have a passion for something, it's really tough to just let go. Um, I semi-retired for like three months, and then I started doing consulting, second opinion, seeing patients who wanted to see me, uh, seeing my own patients who I love dearly, some of which I operated on 20 years ago for breast cancer, and they don't want to see anybody else. So I see them with the caveat that I don't take insurance. 
I, I think we can feel feel your vibe on that one. <laughs> yeah. Neither Ira or myself take insurance. So let's get to it because our listeners want to know about breast cancer and breast cancer treatment. Because when someone is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's very frightening. But the treatment has changed. The surgery is much less invasive than it used to be. And the prognosis is generally better if it's caught early. Let's start off by talking about the importance of routine mammography. Well, it depends who you talk to. If you talk to breast surgeons or radiologists, you need a mammogram every year starting the age of 40, continuing on to at least into the 80s, because at age 85, your risk is highest of breast cancer at one in eight. Uh, there was a committee set up by the Obama administration who looked at how to save money. There wasn't one physician that was a treating physician on that committee. And they said, well, we can do it every other year and start at 50. That was for cost saving. Uh, none of us who treat breast cancer agree with it, but sometimes we're pushed into a corner by government regulations. When should screening stop? It depends on the patient. I have some patients that continue getting screening mammograms in their 90s. I had one lady who, when I told her she no longer needed mammograms at 101, she put her fists on the chair and said, are you writing me off? What do you mean? <laughs> I said, you may have your mammogram, dear. <laughs> so it's also got a lot to do with the patient how they feel about their life and their ability to go and get a mammogram. Do you think that screening mammography should start earlier than the age of 40? Not for the average person. If you have breast cancer in your immediate family that was at age 35, it should be 10 years prior to that diagnosis. If Obviously, if you have the gene for breast cancer, and there are many genes other than BRCA, then you need to start earlier as well. And this is what has always bothered me, though, about the way they do screening mammography. And when I was a resident, they did it differently, but I guess there was no money in it per se. And, and let me explain to you what I'm talking about. You go for a mammogram and the radiologist, you know, if the radiologist could pick their favorite tree, it would be the hedge, okay? Because they're going to overread or hedge on something if they could. And so let's say they're reading it and using what they consider their standard way of reading mammograms with the BIRADS, B-I-R-A-D-S criteria. And now it's a category zero, which means additional imaging is required. And so it takes a couple of days to get the mammogram back. Patients usually on pins and needles. Uh, they might have a remote family history somewhere. Now it comes back, not suspicious for malignancy, but category zero where additional imaging is required. And they'll recommend either an ultrasound or what they call additional views. And those are usually either compression views or different angles to look at it. And with digital imaging, they can look at it a different way. So, so now we're into this two weeks to get the mammogram back or week, and now they get the other screening, and then it says ultrasound suggested, and then they have to go back for the ultrasound, and then they go, 
well, it probably looks okay, but additional imaging is needed again in six months. Why can't a mammography center have a radiologist that looks at the mammogram then and goes, you know what, I'm going to take additional images now. And if there's a problem, I'm going to call your physician. Why doesn't that happen? It does in certain centers that are breast centers and they have dedicated breast trained radiologists. Um, I can name one that's 20 miles away from here, but you can probably figure out where that is. And that would be Jupiter. Um, and I agree with you, the radiologists are going to hedge, but they're also going to CYA um, because they don't want to get sued for missing a breast cancer. And one of the most common suits for radiologists is failure to diagnose a breast cancer. And it can happen with the best radiologists, the best imaging. There is no imaging that is perfect. And if you read the mammogram, it says 86% of the time we're going to be fine. Uh, additional images are necessary. Ultrasound is probably one of the best studies, especially in young women. And now you'll see they recommend an MRI, but try to get that authorized by an insurance company. And I'll sell you the Brooklyn Bridge for 50 cents because they don't want to pay. And that I think that's probably part of the reason, too, why it's not an automatic. I bet you that Jupiter checks your insurance before they book you for your appointment because some of these bundled plans don't allow for automatic secondary images without a prior authorization for an abnormal study first. So I think that that's one of the ways that insurance is now dictating standard of care and one of the reasons why there needs to continue to be physician representation so on these committees. Now we've got someone with a lesion in their breast and we want to refer them to someone like you. And they come into the office. Is that first visit? Do you just talk to them? Do you do a in-office biopsy? Uh, and, and we're going to need to explain to our listeners what this is. Uh, a mammatome, which is a stereotactic type biopsy of the breast, which can be an office-based procedure, perhaps. How do you How do you approach it, Jim? Well, you've kind of integrated two different approaches for biopsy, and I'll kind of explain it. Uh, in the day when I was seeing 40 patients in a day, eight of which were new, people didn't get a biopsy the same day. But, you know, the woman that comes to me with an abnormal mammogram is already planning her will because she thinks she has cancer and she's going to die. So the other reason to see a breast surgeon, if they're a good breast surgeon, they're going to sit, they're going to look at the woman, they're going to hold her hands and look her in the eye and tell her, you, you realize that even if I biopsy this, 80% of the time they're bonai. So let's not get ahead of the game here. So part of what I do is to calm the patient down, to bring her off the ceiling back down to reality. Uh, so usually it's a visit and I will do my own ultrasound. Understanding that ultrasound is a very operator dependent procedure. I have had patients with multiple breast cancers that had a normal ultrasound and I did the ultrasound, found the cancer and biopsied it. Not that I'm the best person in the world, but you know, I've been doing it for 20 years and you want somebody that knows what they're doing when they're acting on an ultrasound. So I'll do the ultrasound that day. And some patients don't need a biopsy. In my mind, they can get a six-month follow-up, but they're always offered a biopsy for peace of mind. I would never turn a woman away that really wanted a biopsy because they're going to leave anxious, frustrated, and feeling like they've not been given a good service. So what you're looking for then is that 
abnormal uh, visual, something that is either calcified or what we call speculated. It looks like it has little ice picks in it, uh, sort of like those stickers you get in your leg uh, walking through the woods. What else do you look for on a mammogram or in an ultrasound that would prompt you to recommend a biopsy? Well, you said calcifications, but ca a lot of fibroadenomas, which are benign tumors, will be calcified. You look for microcalcifications. You look for small microcalcifications, uh, which are very oftentimes associated with ductal carcinoma in situ. You look for architectural distortion, which you'll see on an ultrasound or a mammogram. You look for shadowing. You look for something that isn't the same in both breasts. You look at something that's associated with an ultrasound finding that also may have a clinical finding because ultrasound can miss things like lobular cancers. So it's you've got to put it all together, the physical exam, the mammogram, the ultrasound, and then make a decision what is the best way that we're going to approach this. So uh, before we get too far into types of breast cancer and treatment modalities, I want to ask you about 3D mammography because that's something that has recently been adopted locally by, you know, the big imaging centers. Is this standard of care now? Do you recommend 3D mammography over 2D mammography with ultrasound? Who gets what? What's a breast MRI? Who gets that? Well, I recommend that the average woman getting mammography under the age of 70 should have 3D mammar mammograms because 2D ends up with a lot more callbacks. If you do 3D mammography, they may see something that they can ultimately decide doesn't really need additional imaging because 3D mammography is like tomography. It takes multiple slices of the breast and they look at those multiple slices to make sure that you're not seeing a cumulative effect. So I believe everybody should have 3D mammography. It's a good screening tool. Fact is, Medicare has now said if you don't offer 3D mammography, we're not going to pay your institution. And this would all be a digital mammogram? Yes, they're all digital. Now, a woman that has primarily fatty replaced breasts where there is no superimposition, they don't need a 3D. They can get a 2D. And then what about uh, ultrasound? Is that sort of, you know, it, it's a, a secondary tool, but not necessarily included in screening unless someone's told you you need an ultrasound? Correct. Any woman with dense breasts and radiologists now are required by law, by state law, to indicate how dense the breasts are. And if you have dense breasts, you should have an ultrasound. Now that again, there have been some studies they said well, it really isn't worthwhile. In my mind, if you have dense breasts, you get an ultrasound. Does anybody get screening with breast MRI? No. MRI should be reserved for very specific people. Uh, it, I think breast surgeons should be the one to make that decision. Primary should not be ordering breast MRIs because too many MRIs are going to be done with all due respect to the primaries. But I don't think it's necessary all the time. And I seldom order it. But when it's necessary, it's necessary. If you just joined us, we're talking to Dr. James Vopel right here on Paradox, WSTU. And we're going to be right back right after this short break. Join us when we come back. Thanks for the memories.
Welcome back back to Paradox. I'm Dr. Leanne Talton here with my co-host, Dr. Ira Perlstein. And today we are so lucky that Dr. Jim Vopel agreed to be on our show talking about breast cancer. Before we took the break, we mentioned that we'd like to talk about different types of breast cancer. Can you lead us in on the most common type of breast cancer diagnosed in your practice and practices around the United States? Well, the most common type of breast cancer is ductal. That's about 80% of breast cancer. And now we're talking about invasive breast cancers. The next most common is lobular, uh, which is about 15%. And then there's a spattering of multiple other types of cancers that are rarer that comprise the rest. Now, before you have invasive breast cancer, you probably have non-invasive breast cancer, something called ductal carcinoma in situ. Now, if we could catch every breast cancer at the ductal carcinoma in situ, stage, no one would die from breast cancer because what it means in situ, it is inside the ducts. It has not invaded the basement membrane or that part of the duct that separates the ductal epithelium from the, the, the rest of the breast. So once it gets through that membrane, it becomes invasive and can get into lymph nodes. So if it's inside the duct, you've, you've got it. And so that's what we look for. Is it just luck of the draw that we'll catch those people within the first few months that we can see it on mammogram? Because we oftentimes are diagnosing people with, you know, more invasive types the first time on a mammogram. So are certain cancers just faster than others or is it our detection methodology? Well, some some mammography will not pick up breast cancer until it's already invasive. Uh but one of the hallmarks of ductal carcinoma in situ is microcalcifications. And you will see the radiologist suggesting biopsies on microcalcifications all the time. Tell our listeners what that means, microcalcifications. Calcifications are like bone. They are little pieces of calcium deposit within the breast. Now, many women have large calcium deposits, and those are probably degenerating benign tumors. But when you have a small, irregular cluster of these little pinpoint calcium deposits, that makes you nervous, and that would be the time to consider a biopsy. Now, are all biopsies done the same way? No. You can do stereotactic biopsies, which are mammographically directed biopsies, those are usually done for microcalcifications because you won't see those on ultrasound and you won't feel them. Ultrasound-guided biopsies are usually done for mammographic abnormalities that are a little bit larger, the ones that you can feel because you can usually see them on ultrasound. Now, an ultrasound-guided biopsy is done with the patient laying on their back, which they're far more comfortable with rather than a stereotactic biopsy done on a table with the breast hanging through a hole and the patient is rather uncomfortable. Usually their neck is not happy. So when a biopsy result comes back, that's when patients hear exactly what type of breast cancer they have, whether it's squamous cell carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, et cetera. Are you able to make any kind of prognostic uh, and are you able to tell people what to expect at this stage or does it usually require um, a surgery? If you look at a tissue diagnosis of a cell type, you can have 
small breast cancers that are lobular or ductile that are bad actors, and you can have big ones that are not bad actors. What we're learning more about breast cancer, it's not the type, but it's the biology of the tumor, and that's where we are today. We're looking at biology, not so much size. I've had tumors that are two inches in size that are relatively benign, no lymph node metastases, patients do well. I've had three millimeter breast cancers that are horrendous. They are high grade, they're aggressive. So we can't put every breast cancer in the same box. You need to look at the big picture. And there's other things that we wanna talk about, receptors, HER2, that all have a lot to do with what makes this tumor good, bad, otherwise, and how are we going to address it? Well, let's talk about that a little bit, uh, about hormone receptors and the biology of breast cancers, because our listeners need to know that hormone receptors are basically proteins found both in and on breast cells, and that these receptors pick up hormone signals, which tell the cells to grow. So a cancer is called estrogen receptor positive or ER positive, if it has receptors for estrogen. How are ER-positive tumors treated differently than non-estrogen receptor-positive tumors? Well, we have a plethora of drugs available to us, which first became available in the late 1980s with a drug called tamoxifen that let us treat these tumors and somehow block estrogen from attaching to the tumor. Some of them block the receptors. We have others now that block the formation of estrogen from testosterone. Uh, these, are, these drugs have saved more women's lives than any chemotherapy or any surgery in, in the history of breast cancer treatment. These are critically important. So these drugs would be your, what they call SERM selective estrogen receptor modulators. And I would imagine there are also some monoclonal antibodies that would be used in that scheme of treatment as well. Well, the SERMs are one that's tamoxifen and uh, raloxifen. We have aromatase inhibitors, which block the formation of uh, estrogen from testosterone by eliminating that S enzyme aromatase. Uh, so these are the drugs that need to be evaluated for, and we need ER receptors. Now, the interesting thing about estrogen receptors, patients that are estrogen receptor positive will not recur early. Now, people won't like to hear this because everybody wants to say, well, after five years, I'm recurring. I'm cured. But estrogen receptor positive tumors tend to be better actors if they're treated appropriately, and they will recur at year five to eight. No one talks about that, but we've recently gone from prescribing these estrogen blocking drugs from five years to 10 years for that very reason, because when we were using them only for five years, we found that too many patients recurred. Guess what? A year five to 10. So you had mentioned HER2 a few times, and HER2 is a human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, which promotes the growth of cancer cells. And my understanding is that in about one out of every five breast cancers, 
they have that gene mutation that makes an excess of that HER2 protein. So if you're estrogen receptor positive and you're HER2 positive, does that carry a much higher incidence of recurrence than if you are receptor negative? If you look at the time differences, when HER2 was first discovered, it was essentially a death sentence. Uh, in the early 90s, a company called Genentech developed Herceptin, and there wasn't enough around, and it was a lottery. And if you got Herceptin, you lived. If you didn't, you died. And I had to tell a lot of my patients, I'm sorry, there isn't enough for you. And now we've got a drug called Perjeda, which complements her, Herceptin. And while Herceptin was great, the introduction of Perjeda has changed the entire landscape of HER2 positive disease. Now we even look and hope that people are HER2 positive if they have big tumors with lymph node metastases because chemotherapy up front before any surgery can completely eliminate that tumor in up to 70% of people. It is, it's just the evolution of the treatment of breast cancer. What was true 10 years ago is old news. And who knows what tomorrow is going to bring. So I think that the general public is aware that ER, PR, HER2 status is relevant. Can you talk a little bit about what triple negative breast cancer is? Well, triple negative means that all three of those are not present. So you haven't got the ability to use the estrogen blocking agents and you haven't got the ability to use Herceptin and possibly Perjeda if it's indicated. So triple negative is where we all shudder when we have to tell somebody that they have breast cancer because we can give them surgery, we can give them radiation, but none of those are systemic treatments. People don't die of breast cancer in their breasts. They die because the breast cancer spreads to bone, liver, lungs, brain. And if you have no systemic therapy, you're leaving that patient and hoping that you were able to get this before metastatic disease developed. Chemotherapy the old chemotherapy that they use for breast cancer before they had these receptors. Is that all that's available then for triple negative breast cancer? Correct. But once they've had the chemotherapy, they're done. So in the process of your of a patient's diagnosis, they have come in, they have had some sort of screening imaging that has shown a tumor. They have seen a breast surgeon now who confirms it on exam or ultrasound in the office. They have now undergone a biopsy. They have gotten pathology back, which talks about the type of cancer and also the receptor status. What happens next? They get surgery and uh, has breast surgery changed since you've been practicing? Well, what happens next could be surgery, or it could be chemotherapy, or it could be what we call neoadjuvant hormonal therapy. Uh, the good breast surgeon doesn't just look at the patient in front of him as a surgical candidate. You have to understand that maybe giving some treatment before surgery will benefit that patient. You can look for tumor response. You can look for the complete disappearance of the tumor. And if, if we have a patient that we operate on that has previous complete pathologic response to either hormonal therapy or chemotherapy, that 
really gives us an indication that their long-term prognosis is excellent. You're a surgeon. Let's discuss a little bit about surgical approaches. Mastectomy versus lumpectomy. How do you decide? Well, you have to go back and look at the Halstead mastectomy, which was the standard of care from 1905 until about 1989, uh, no, 1979, when somebody decided that there was a radical approach to just doing a partial mastectomy or a lumpectomy followed by radiation. Some of those surgeons were felt to be heretics. I was involved with a surgeon at the University of Miami who was in clinical trials doing that, and we realized that there was no difference in survival between mastectomy and doing a lumpectomy or partial mastectomy and radiation. So that is now the treatment of choice. Partial mastectomy and followed by radiation. Now, radiation used to be a little more involved. It's getting to be less involved and less aggressive as they found that they didn't need to do as much radiation. Now, saying that, not every patient is a candidate for a partial mastectomy. It depends on your disease. It also depends if you carry the gene for breast cancer. This is not a wise thing to do on somebody who carries a gene for breast cancer because as I found out before we did genetic testing, you suddenly find another tumor in the, in the other breast and then a third tumor in the first breast. So if you have the gene for breast cancer, you need to seriously consider your surgical options and not say, well, I'm going to just do a lumpectomy because you are at risk. Now, it just, would this just be the BRCA gene or are there other genes that you look at? No, there are lots of other genes. Does uh, insurance pay for pre-surgical genetic testing? With certain conditions. Uh, with the National Cancer Institute has come up with rules and regulations, and they've really expanded who should get genetic testing. If your mother had breast cancer and your grandmother had breast cancer and your sister had breast cancer, well, you better get tested. Uh, there are other cancers that are also associated with breast cancer, ovarian cancer, some uh, melanomas. You have to look at the entire genetic profile, uh, the entire genetic profile and the entire history, family history, to see what the family has shown and that every breast surgeon should talk to their patient about to decide, do we have to do genetic testing before we do surgery? Now, at the time of surgery, are you sampling lymph nodes in all patients? Ductal carcinoma in situ, no, unless it's high-grade and very extensive because there may be a small invasive component that hasn't been identified. And you can tell right there by doing a frozen section at the time of surgery? No, this is dependent upon your biopsy and your imaging studies. Okay. And sometimes we get burned uh, and you have to go back and do a sentinel node. The average patient with an invasive breast cancer should have lymph node sampling which is called a sentinel node procedure. It's done by identifying those nodes which would be affected by the breast cancer by injecting a radioactive isotope and a blue dye, or just the blue dye or just a radioactive isotope, depends on your training. I use both. Now, the older breast cancer patients, when they did the complete lymph node dissection, uh, they were no longer allowed to have anything tight, tourniquet-wise, put around that arm, blood drawn out of that arm, blood pressure taking, because they would develop 
uh, fairly significant lymphedema. By doing a sentinel node biopsy, have we avoided the possibility of developing lymphedema? In about 80%. And some of that information about axillary node dissections and further things like blood pressure, one way they treat lymphedema is they put pressure compression devices on. Well, what is a blood pressure cuff? So anybody who has had a lymph node dissection can have a blood pressure. Anybody who's had a lymph node dissection can have venipuncture if it's done by somebody who's trained to do that. The, what I tell my patients is do not allow anybody to do surgery on that arm without talking to me or do not allow anybody to put an IV in that arm. Now, can you talk a little bit about radiation and breast cancer treatment? Uh, there are some people that qualify for radiation at the time of their surgery and other people who have to do radiation after their surgery. Who does what? Well, intraoperative radiation is a very exciting treatment modality. Uh, I've done a lot of these cases, but it depends on the tumor. It depends on the size of the breast. Will it accommodate a, a balloon? Because intraoperative radiation therapy is putting a catheter into the breast that has a balloon on it. And you need to have adequate spacing between the skin or you will burn the skin. So it's got to do with the the patient's tumor. It's got to do with the patient's uh, size of their breast. You can't have lymph node metastases and have intraoperative radiation therapy, or you have to have home breast radiation after you're done. Because anybody with lymph node metastases, by definition, gets home breast radiation. And patients who are not good follow-ups, and patients who haven't seen a doctor in years and present to the office with a fungating, enlarging breast mass that you can actually see growing out of the breast, and the breast is dimpled. It's that, there's a French term for it, it's called odor orange, which means skin of the orange. It looks like an orange peel. Is preoperative radiation ever indicated to shrink the size of the tumor prior to removing the tumor and then proceeding? In this country, no because preoperative radiation is going to alter the blood flow of that tumor. It may or may not shrink it, and then the surgeon is left trying to operate in an irradiated field, which is a nightmare. Now, radiation is definitely indicated in that patient afterwards, and the patient that you're talking about is an ideal candidate for what we call neoadjuvant chemotherapy or hormonal therapy. So we give that up front and try to shrink it down as much as we can. Because if you take that fungating tumor and you remove it from the chest wall, you have a big hole. Then what are you going to close that with? Well, you have to take skin grafts, which takes a lot of healing, and then you have to radiate that skin graft. So I've had many patients that you have described and they've all gotten treatment up front and I've just sat back and watched and waited until it was my turn. Explain to our listeners what neoadjuvant therapy means. Well, adjuvant therapy uh, is additional therapy after the surgery. So if you do adjuvant chemotherapy, it's after the surgery. If you do adjuvant hormonal therapy, it's after the surgery. Neo means before. So we give it before we do surgery, before we do radiation. 
So can you tell us what the term oncotype means? Because it seems like we use that term to describe who would have a tumor that is going to be responsive to chemotherapy in certain instances. Okay. So oncotype is a, it's a name that a company uses to do genomic profiling of a tumor. You usually save genomic profiling for after the surgery because then you're looking at the major tumor and not just a little segment of a biopsy. So Oncotype DX is a, is a series of tests that's done on the tumor looking at numbers of different proteins and pathways. So an Oncotype score that's low means that the patient is going, going to do very well. And these patients are always estrogen receptor positive. You can't do an oncotype on an estrogen receptor negative because it, it, it has no prognostic value. High-risk patients benefit from chemotherapy. And that has been a very big uh, turning point in how we determine who do we give chemotherapy. Now, we've talked about hormone receptors and oncotypes there's another term that's thrown around a lot by our patients and our listening audience, and those are tumor markers. And I would imagine that we follow tumor markers more in metastatic disease, disease that has spread. Would you talk briefly about tumor markers? Okay. Tumor markers are proteins. And the proteins that are tumor markers are elicited by different cancers. Now, there's a oftentimes there's a crossover between certain tumor markers and they may be shared by different cancers. One of those is CEA. But certain tumor markers are specific to certain cancers. So tumor markers are important, but usually found only in big tumors or in tumors that have metastasized. Now, the oncologists use tumor markers routinely because they are looking for metastatic disease. And they look for changes. Uh, if your tumor markers are all running in a straight line and suddenly they spike, that indicates something's going on and the oncologist will start hunting for metastatic disease. It is dangerous to do tumor markers on the average healthy person who doesn't want cancer. And I've seen some people who have done that and it's resulted in a plethora of tests with no good result. Lots of false positives. Dangerous. Dangerous. Correct. So the patient who comes in, and we, we see this a lot in primary care, I want to be tested for everything. I want to know if I have cancer anywhere in my body. And they've looked up on the internet tumor markers for breast cancers like CA-15-3, CA-27.29, CEA, et cetera, et cetera, and wanted to be tested for these. Caution to the listing audience. Tumor markers are used only to follow metastatic disease. They are not meant to be screening tests for just that reason. Absolutely. Now, Dr. Vopel, as we near the end of our show, which I think you've done such a beautiful job taking us stepwise through what is difficult for most people to navigate, breast cancer, diagnosis, treatment, um, where do you see breast cancer treatment going in the future? Well, what we're doing today is going to be looked at as barbaric in 20 years. Surgery will be gone except in very rare cases for refractory treatment. Uh, radiation will probably disappear. Chemotherapy as we know it will disappear. It's all going to be targeted therapy. 
if you look at what we're doing now, all of the research looks at what are the pathways that these tumor cells take. And if you look at some of the targeted therapies, the same targeted therapies that are used for things like rheumatoid arthritis are also being used for cancer because the pathways are the same. And what we're doing is we're blocking pathways. Look at immunotherapy, uh, where you take a, a virus and inject it into a melanoma, and suddenly the body thinks that it's a virus and kills it, and uh, along the way kills the melanoma. You have brightened our day. You have enlightened our audience. We can't thank you enough for being here this morning. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on Paradox. We'll see you next week. Pick on you a little bit. Do you have uh, the Bob Hope song to open up with, Functional Memory? You know, funny you should mention because if I was left to my own design, I was going to do that. That would be a good opening. That's fine. I'm happy to do it. I'm gonna, yeah, I'll pick on you a little bit and then I'll let you go. Okay. Well, see, we were going to call the show Double Breasted. And and it was going to be you and, and Craig. You know these millennials, they don't commit. Yeah, to anything. <laughs> oh wait, you are a millennial. I am, I'm on the I'm on the You're border. On the yeah, I'm on the cusp. I'm also on the cusp of being a Sagittarius, so that means something too. Well, I'm a Sagittarius. We're, we have the same birthday. You know, we're like uh, the the new one, a Sculpides or something like that. If you read it, you'll be like, oh, that's so me. <laughs> You're not on the cusp. The cusp is December twentieth, isn't it? No, I think we're right on the...
memories of rainy afternoons, swingy Harlem tunes, motor trips. Ira, did you just name this show Thanks for the Memories? I couldn't come up with a better name. Double breasted. Thanks for the memories. <laughs> Our show today is on breast cancer. And you're getting punnier by the minute. Yep. We've got, by the minute. we've got Dr. Jim Vopel and it's sure to be a great show. Tune in. And moments on the Hudson River line. How lovely it was. Many is the time.